It's part two of our season five opener. Still feeling sick and tired, Dorothy visits even more doctors, but this time she's believed. Finally getting answers, Dorothy is ready to celebrate. Another housemate feeling celebratory, and perhaps more than a bit loopy, is Blanche, who claims she has finished her great American novel. But she also claims egg yolks in a bag are eyeballs, so she's not in a place to be trusted. In the end, Dorothy gets to give a bit of a comeuppance, Sophia gets to give a spit take, Rose gives Blanche a what for, and Blanche, well, she screams. Join us now for part two of Sick and Tired. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. After a quick recap of last week's travels, writings, and frustrations, we open up at a medical facility that isn't Biscayne Bay. Inside, we scan down toys and stuffed animals before revealing we've joined Dorothy in a pediatrician's office, where she's taking out her violent aggression toward these doctors on a piece of clay. Yes, we are at a pediatrician's office, but not just any pediatrician. We have finally made it to Dr. Harry Weston's office. As therapeutic as the Play-Doh may be, Dorothy in white pants, a teal turtleneck, and a duster that looks like splotches of every color of crayon melted upon itself, is asked by Dr. Weston, in his gray pants, blue shirt, blue and gray tie, and doctor's coat, to knock it off. Even if Dorothy is a little out of the age range Harry is used to seeing, he is still a medical professional, and better yet, he's a friend, so he'll give it to Dorothy straight. Looking over her chart, it's clear that she has seen the tip-top docs. Well, maybe only based on accolades. For Dorothy, she has lost all faith in the existence of good doctors. No offense to Harry. We've talked about Richard Mulligan before, as we love ourselves some Dr. Harry. Excitingly, we will get to see him again in Not Another Monday, as the only highlight of that episode. Sadly, this will be our last visit with the good doc, with the Golden Girls at least. We'll still have him on Empty Nest and Nurses. The relationship Dorothy and Harry has is pivotal in her getting help. Because he knows how she is regularly, he, like the girls, can not only tell something is wrong, but he knows that she's not one to make up stories. And finally, he says the very least one could say to ease Dorothy's misery, that he believes her, and that just because there isn't a name or a test for whatever is happening doesn't mean it's not real. Being given yet another referral, Dorothy is going to be sent to Dr. Michael Chang, a hospital virologist. He'll run even more tests. Fearful and wanting an honest answer from the one person that is willing to give it to her, Dorothy directly asks if she's going to die. Her question is met with, I'm afraid so. But Dr. Harry is just being lighthearted. He doesn't know that what she's sick with will be the cause of her death, but he can guarantee her, and, well, every other living thing on the planet, that yes, they will die, unless the technologically advanced Japanese create a version of immortality. Machine 
With Dr. Chang's name and number in hand, Dorothy is grateful and relieved. Before the note with the info is handed over, Harry comments on his terrible handwriting, something I've experienced when going through old medical examiner documents. I've had to ask for translation help via Murder in the Rain's Instagram several times. So thank you to all those medical transcriptionists. You are underrated heroes. There have been jokes about doctors writing for as long as there has been doctors. But why is that a thing? According to Lecturio.com, one of the best explanations for the chicken scratch is that doctors use their hands all day every day. Be it for note-taking with a patient, physical examinations, or even surgeries, the hands and their small muscles get worn out. So throughout the day, the writing gets worse, as it does overall through time. As Dorothy's appointment comes to an end, Ellen comes bursting in. Remember at your wedding when you started laughing and you laughed so hard you cried and your eyelashes slid down your cheek? You look terrible. An easy mistake. This towhead blonde, mulleted boy with the coolest 1989 t-shirt is Oliver. And he has brought the doctor some soup. Well, not really. What he has brought is his urine sample, but he jokes that it's chicken soup. Then Harry jokes that if it looked like vegetable soup, he would have a serious problem. I spent an offensive amount of time trying to figure out this entire scene. Then I saw a goof that helped me understand the ununderstandable. Oliver comes in with a cup. It's kind of a medium-sized water cooler Dixie cup. So they joke about it being soup or not. But really, it's his pee sample, which, in my opinion, a child should never be trusted to casually carry around an office. Then Oliver turns to Dorothy, and for just a split second, the cup turns into a thermos, which then goes back to the whole soup conversation, like, were they originally talking about soup? But then it turns back into the cup in the next frame, and then by the time Harry is holding it up, it does actually look like a pea sample. So I'm sure there's a story about why the cup was changed from being a thermos and therefore making this moment make a little bit more sense, but I've already wasted way too much of my own time on this, so... Let's move on. Although I did like Coco's idea that perhaps they were filming rehearsal and they hadn't given him the sample cup. They just threw a thermos in his hand. And that was the only take of that moment that worked. Oliver is being played by Glenn Walker Harris Jr. He started acting when he was just two years old on Highway to Heaven. He provided his voice to the character Young Dimitri in the animated Anastasia and also appeared in ER, Star Trek Voyager, News Radio, Meet Wally Sparks, Walker, Texas Ranger, North, Dream On, Jake and the Fat Man, Wild at Heart, Doogie Howser, An Eight is Enough Wedding, and he played Sly Eckert in over 60 episodes of General Hospital. He, of course, appeared in L.A.L.A.W. and is probably most recognizable as playing Jason Dobler, Lloyd Dobler slash John Cusack's nephew, in Say Anything. Yeah! Yeah! He's back! Hey, my brother, can I buy a copy of your Hey Soul classics? No, my brother, you have to go buy your own. Now, work that bag, work that work, work that bag, Jimmy Man. Left hook, hook off the jab, straight left hand. What do we love? Hey! Now that the most confusing and upsetting conversation centered around soup is over, Oliver sets his sights on Dorothy, asking her how old she is and if Harry has been her doctor since she was a kid. Dorothy blows off the age question and says Harry isn't her doctor, He's her friend. As Oliver leaves, Harry begs for what is now being referred to as the bottle in his hands. Dorothy can't care about the pee or the annoying child. She is just so grateful to have a doctor in her corner, finally. 
Having noticed Oliver was being mischievous, Dr. Weston's nurse, Laverne, goes into the room only to find Dr. Weston holding pee that wasn't his to hold or Oliver's to give. He actually had a friend pee for him. He may be comfortable peeing in his bed, but he's not comfortable peeing in public. Dr. Weston then, while referring to a child's pee, makes a joke about how it's like sex. Easy to do in bed, not so much in public. That statement is not supported by Laverne. Spicy and weird. Overall, these overalls are overall my body. Oh, yeah. Overall, these overalls are overall my body. It's like half of a shirt. Thanks to YouTube's Sarah Maddock for that jam, which I have now dubbed Park Overalls Theme Music. You should check out the whole song. It's pretty catchy. Playing Laverne Todd is Park Overall. Boy, oh boy, do I love some Park Overall. Also known as Parker, she is the queen of the Southern accent, the sassy attitude, and being the best person to have a name regarding a clothing item. Not only has she been in numerous stage productions, but she has been on big and small screens since 1987. While she has been working here and there in the last two decades, she has shifted her focus to politics, protesting pipelines, confronting companies, and even running for Senate in 2012. I also learned that she supports my forever valentine, Bernie Sanders. I love you, Park. Coco's favorite appearance of hers is from Mississippi Burning. Maybe not, miss. I... Mrs. Hale, her old man's Ray Stuckey's deputy. But I'm single. <laughs> Back at the house, Rose, in a light mint blue shirt and apron, is separating eggs. She's putting the whites in a bowl, the yolks in a bag, and the shells in another bowl. When Sophia, in a navy and light greenish dress with blue cardigan, comes in, she politely asks, Rose, what in the hell are you doing? Why, she's tediously separating the yolks and whites as she wants to make egg white omelets for everyone, being careful to avoid the cholesterol of the yolk. For those who weren't around or maybe don't remember, I feel like the late 80s through the 90s was the heyday of, are eggs good for you or not? There was a sense of hysteria. One day it was, eat all the eggs you can, they're amazing for you. The next, never eat an egg again as the cholesterol will kill you dead. And the back and forth went on. Have less eggs, only have one egg, have egg whites, yada yada. As of today, the American Heart Association says, eat eggs, but just be careful. Eggs only have 78 calories and pack a ton of protein and vitamins, such as vitamin D, choline, which is for your metabolism and liver function, and lutein and zeaxanthin, which helps your eyes. The yolks do have a significant amount of cholesterol, but some studies, not involving horrible Western diets, have shown that having an egg a day lowered the risk of heart disease and stroke. It's also been shown cardiovascular risk factors for people with diabetes did not go up from eating eggs. So, get to cracking. Sometimes I have you come in and just pour scrambled eggs into my mouth. Yeah, raw. That's right. To those who say eggs aren't good for you, this is our reply. Call for the facts on eggs and nutrition. Give eggs a break. Get cracking. Hey, Rose, I know your heart is in the right place and you want to donate those yolks, but I don't think anyone wants a bag of egg yolks, except for me, because it's the best part of the egg. And if mine isn't runny, don't bother. Here are some things you could have made with them. Tarts, hollandaise sauce, lemon curd, ice cream, mayonnaise, scones, and many, many more things. 
A victim of big anti-egg propaganda, Sophia says that the donation of the yolks will kill the houseless people, thus fixing the problem of them not having houses. This is all sarcastic, as Sophia understands Rose is trying to be helpful, but she's just not smart enough to pull it off. Entering the kitchen with more energy than she's had in ages, Dorothy is headed out to see Dr. Chang. Wearing khaki culottes, a yellow vest-like shirt over a white shirt under a blue and green patched cover, and back to wearing lipstick, Sophia is worried that Dorothy looks too good and the doctors will deny her claims. Coming in not looking so good is Blanche. Her hair is huge, her mouth is agape, her brown, white, black, and fuchsia robe is askew. She looks so bad, Sophia suggests that she go see the doctor in Dorothy's place. There'd be no denying that she's unwell. Maybe Blanche should go to a doctor, as she doesn't even know what day it is. Why? Because she finally broke her way through her writer's block. In the 72 hours that she has been awake, which I'll talk about more in a moment, she has written for a day, destroyed that progress, then began again. Pointing to the multiple notebooks in her arms, she claims that she went through some sort of supernatural experience, and the words poured out of her and onto the page. It was so surreal, it was like another being was writing for her, leaving Rose wondering who the other writer was. Blanche specifies, It wasn't one person, but every person. It's the word of every being. As Dorothy passes the maniacal Blanche, who has now taken a seat at the island, she's dared to open any of the notebooks to any page, and she'll see. She'll see the magic. All Dorothy can see is the back of her own head as she gives that dare a hearty eye roll. Back to the 72 hours awake. It is nearly physically impossible for a person to stay awake for three days without being forced to do so, hence it being part of torture blueprints. According to the Cleveland Clinic, at 72 hours, you lose the ability to regulate your emotions or accurately perceive the world around you. You can be irritable, depressed, anxious, struggling with thinking, and executive functioning. You might even hallucinate or hallucinate the latter meaning that something is there, but your brain can't interpret what it is. As in, if I stayed awake for 72 hours and Coco approached me, I might not be able to understand his words or even tell that he's a human. Knowing this, it makes Blanche's delirium make a lot more sense. Speaking to no one, as she may not even perceive the girl's existence, Blanche starts to twaddle about how tired she is. So tired, in fact, she's too tired to sleep, and she shan't sleep again which at three days already she needs to do soon so her brain doesn't start dysfunctioning to the point of causing death. But death by sleep deprivation is very rare. She's more likely to be hurt or worse due to an accident caused by her drowsiness. Wondering aloud what she's going to do about the sleep situation, her eye catches the bag of egg yolks. As her eyes and face try to process what she's looking at, the hallucination aspect of her being awake has kicked in, and she holds up the bag, proclaiming that they're little balls of sunshine. Rose is nearly disgusted at Blanche's behavior, but she's able to tell her that it's a bag of yolks. Well, that does it. She's lost it. Her brain is gone. Her physical energy is gone. All symptoms of great writers. No one is indulging in Blanche's trip, so she goes on. Not only has she written a great novel, but she's changed her mind and she won't be selling it. It'll have to be published after she dies, just like with painter Vincent Van Gogh. And like him, she will cut off her hair. When Dorothy reminds her that he cut off his ear, she doesn't entertain the thought. She has too many good earrings for something like that. 
Sadly, it's time for Dorothy's doctor appointment. Sophia's bummed to miss out on the one-woman show of insanity, but they gotta scoot. Rose, continuing her support, wishes Dorothy luck and that the doctor tells her what's wrong with her. Not that something's wrong with her, but the doctors have been wrong, which isn't right, which is what Dorothy is. She's right about being wrong. Rose's gibberish has activated Blanche's hallucinations, and she can't understand English or poems, whatever language Rose was babbling. As she leaves, Dorothy asks that Rose get Blanche into bed. A quick way to do this would be to start calling names from her little black book. I'm sure if Mel Bushman came over, she'd be in bed in one second. Is Mel Bushman from the the men of Blanche's boudoir? I don't think he was in the book, but he's a well-known character in the future. I know that you don't know him yet, but... Just with that he's name. He's just kind of an... He's, a, he's every guy. He's all the guys. In the few, It's not really a spoiler. Mel Bushman starts to get referenced, I think, in a few episodes, but he's kind of... He becomes Blanche's go-to. Ah. So if she doesn't have a date or she's not dating anybody or she has an event, she calls up Mel Bushman. His last name makes me think that the writers were kind of trying to get <gasps> away with something. Oh, my. Coco. spicy Bushman. Overhearing Dorothy's request, Blanche shuts it down. She has tried to sleep, but when doing so, she jolts right back up like a punching clown or Bozo Bop Bag, as the originator of the punchable squeaky toy was, of course, Bozo the Clown. This Bozo, Blanche, is so out of it, she hopes Dorothy will come back with a gift for her. Without hesitation, Rose gets to her job. She sits Blanche down at the table, but before Blanche's booty can even touch the chair, she's back up, telling Rose that since she's a friend, she can have a peek at the novel. Rose seizes the moment for bargaining. Okay, if I read it, you have to go to bed after. As Rose reads, Blanche goes on and on about Minnesota, how it's an honest state with farms and lakes and pale people. Giving it more thought, Blanche decides that she would rather drown herself than live somewhere like that. Though she's the only one talking, Blanche wants Rose to be quiet and read. Blanche herself can't stay quiet. She must now start working on the companion reference guide the readers of her not-for-sale book will need for a full understanding, which can then be used for teaching in colleges. Back at the island, she has once again spotted the yolks, and they've turned from sunshine to yellow eyeballs. When a frustrated Rose tells her to go to sleep, it's met with, to sleep perchance to dream, a line she can't believe she's come up with, probably because she didn't. The line, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, I, there's the rub, for in this sleep of death what dreams may come, was actually written by another equally great writer, William Shakespeare. And this quote is from Hamlet. Your performance of the great bard's word has moved me to my <laughs> core. Bravo! <laughs> Bravo to you. According to Oxford, as in the skewel, this line is said by Hamlet himself to himself. This is the speech where he asks, to be or not to be, meaning should I live or die? The moment is about his questioning if he should fight or give up. Thinking she's as good as old Billy Shakes, Blanche wants that line in her book, a book that, according to its only reader, Rose, makes no sense. Hearing the news, Blanche can't dismiss Rose's opinion fast enough. 
Now she's saying she doesn't trust Rose because she's from Minnesota and therefore has only read Paul Bunyan, the classic Americana tale of the giant man and his big blue ox, the Sears catalog, and Silas Marner. Instead of describing it to you, I'll let the trailer from the film adaptation starring Ben Kingsley explain. Love and gratitude triumph in this superb adaptation of a classic Victorian tale. And now she says she'll never leave me. I think I'll trust till I die. Silas Marner. Doesn't that sound fun? No, thank you. Storming off in a fuss, Blanche says the criticism she's received is the same reason she won't sell the rights to her book for a movie. She'll be damned if Glenn Close speaks her words. I'm not sure if this was a joke because Glenn Close was going to be starring in Hamlet, so since she thinks she wrote the words that were from Hamlet and therefore Glenn Close would be saying her words, or if she just didn't like her or they were friends and she was making that joke because Glenn was having a pretty good time in the late 80s, appearing in The Natural, Jagged Edge, Fatal Attraction. Maybe that was it, that she had been in some sexy thrillers and Blanche didn't want her sexy book to be one of those movies. Or she's just fully sleep-deprived insane. I don't know. She's an Air Force One, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, that's my president. Yeah, what is she? Is she the vice? She's the vice. So she oh, becomes the yeah. president. She's because... a great commander in that movie. Oh, she doesn't f*** around. She takes charge. She's like, we're going to do, as far as we know, he's still alive. And we are going to do what the president says. That's an order. Air Force One clip. <laughs> if we're going to act, we have to act now. It's too risky. The president is up there with a gun to his head. He's asking us to do that to Air Force One? He's not asking. Your commander-in-chief has issued a direct order. Do it! Getting into the living room, Rose is still chasing Blanche, hoping she'll lay down in her bed. But before they can even get in the hallway, Blanche has seen the couch and there's no going back. Laying her body across it, she asks Rose to lull her to sleep with a boring St. Olaf story. I guess that's a redundant statement. Rose is happy to help. In fact, being asked for a story is a dream. And now she can't think of one, which doesn't matter, as Blanche is finally asleep. Back at the community medical center, we find Dorothy and Sophia in a doctor's office, watching him as he goes through Dorothy's chart. Without a word being said, Sophia finds it necessary to say that she's a big fan of Chinese people, this being because the doctor is Asian. Oh, boy. Her declaration is met with dead stares from her daughter and the doctor. Even when Dorothy makes it clear that she wants her to shut up, Sophia goes on, saying she appreciates how the Chinese culture respects and cares for the elderly and that they have great hair. At this point, it's an oh boy, but her intention is to gas the doctor up in hopes that he'll be nice to her daughter and maybe even give her some answers. Playing Dr. Chang is Keone Young. His nearly 300 credits date back to his first role in Room 222 back in 1969. Nice. He also appeared in or provided his voice for Private Benjamin, Kojak, Taxi Cheers, Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere, Webster, Gem, Gummy Bears, DuckTales, Family Matters, Honeymoon in Vegas, Jack, Wish, Grace and Frankie, Men in Black 3, Murphy Brown, and my personal favorite performance as Mr. Watanabe in the Brady Bunch movie. This is one of our new gyms that we are constructing. We are negotiating to buy the design right now. Really? Who's your architect? Very talented fellow. Name of Brady. He also appeared in one of Coco's favorites, Deadwood. He plays a man who is Chinese. Wow. He play- <laughs> Thank you, you for that name? character description. Did you say his name? Or I did not. Uh, the character he plays in that show is Mr. Wu, 
who is one of the kingpins of that little town. And he's a character that I watched a little documentary about his character. The creator of the show said that that character initially does not learn how to speak English when he moves to America so that he never had to learn to trust anyone who didn't speak Chinese. Oh, interesting. Which I thought was very cool. And the, Kind of a personal security. Yeah, and he's a very hard person, but he's very savvy even though he doesn't speak the language. It's a very cool character. Well, let's hear some of it. Oh, th this is him dead. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and these two. Sucker. Yeah, glad I taught you that fucking word. And we will see Keone Young again in season seven in Portrait of a Rose. Finishing his examination, the doctor echoes what Dr. Harry said, that not every doctor is right and new illnesses, diseases, and viruses are discovered all the time. We can't hear more from him yet because Sophia is still love-bombing him about his culture, hair, food, games, eating utensils. When Dorothy gives a yelled, Ma, enough, Sophia finally stops. Then Dorothy hears the words she has been desperate for. I think you are sick. Amazingly, the doctor even gives her illness a name, chronic fatigue syndrome. For those who might not know, such as Coco, the god and creator of the girls, Susan Harris, was actually diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Like Dorothy, her symptoms were so bad it affected her ability to work on the show. Also like Dorothy, she struggled with being taken seriously and getting a diagnosis. So in those moments of frustration, sadness, and confusion that feel so real, it's because they were. Susan wrote the episode as her, quote, revenge script for all the people out there who had a disease like that. That really comes through in the writing. It has a little more of that mod energy. Yes, yes. So that's why. Yeah, it was very, yeah, very vulnerable material that she was delivering. And it, yeah, it just felt like it came from the heart. I, it would be interesting if there was a way to find out how many people saw this episode and then went to the doctor and said, I think it's this because I have all these exact symptoms. And how many doctors dismissed them uh -huh. because they were watching a TV show. Oh, exactly. Here is some information about CFS from the Mayo Clinic. CFS is officially known as myalgic encephalomitis. Maybe. It causes extreme fatigue that lasts for at least six months. Symptoms worsen with physical or mental activity, but never fully improve with rest. Amazingly, after all of these years, the cause is still unknown, although there are theories. Experts believe it might be triggered by a combination of factors, some of which are genetics, infections, physical or emotional trauma, issues with energy conversion, and age, especially those middle-aged gulp. Women do experience a higher rate of CFS, although it hasn't been proven if it occurs more in women or if women are just more likely to go to the doctor for such symptoms and other medical issues like fibromyalgia or postural orthostatic trachycardia syndrome. Still sucking up to the doc, Sophia commends his genius and throws in that she loved the Rodgers and Hammerstein play that became a 1961 film, Flower Drum Song. You see what happens when you leave it to young people to fall in love naturally? You and your American plan. Join Jack Sue and Nancy Kwan for an unforgettable feast of song, dance, and romance in Rodgers and Hammerstein's Flower Drum Song. Making sure she's not misunderstanding him, Dorothy says the other doctors told her she was depressed. So what's different now? 
the doctor sees how that could happen as fatigue is a symptom of depression, but depression doesn't affect your glands or give you fevers. To be sure, they'll do some blood tests and test against other illnesses, showing that she falls into the CFS category. It's official. Dorothy has a real illness. They'll know for sure in a few weeks, but for now, she'll be okay. She might have the symptoms for a few more months or even years because it presents itself differently in each person. Excited, Sophia really can't stop herself now. She even gives rightful credit to the Chinese for inventing pasta in her own oh-boy fashion. Revisiting season three in The Audit, where we learned that there are some historians that believe the first pasta was rice pasta, which was brought from China to Italy by Marco Polo. Then there are others that feel Arab people introduced Sicily to pasta. There are also those who say there is proof spaghetti came from Italy, like Sophia, who admits to the Italians stealing pasta and only getting credit because they added her favorite seasoning, oregano. For now, doctor's orders are for Dorothy to try and get used to managing her symptoms, and they'll do further testing. Since there's no cure, she'll need to pay attention to her needs of eating and sleeping well and hoping for the best. Relieved to know what she has, Dorothy can't understand why it has taken no less than eight doctor's visits for an answer. Dr. Chang explains it's usually for two reasons. One being ignorance, as in the doctor hasn't been keeping up to date with illnesses and doesn't even know of its existence. Or ignorance, as in they don't believe in the illness because they can't see it and they blame the patient or think they need mental health care. For now, the appointment is over and Dorothy is excited to get home. Before she does, Sophia does have a question. We can't hear it because it's a flesh boot sighting. What Sophia asks is that if she orders Chinese food and asks the very 80s slash 90s request of no MSG, will the restaurant just put it in anyway? Here's why that's an oh boy. Business Insider tells us MSG, scientifically known as monosodium glutamate, is an additive that not only occurs naturally in some foods, but is used to enhance flavors. MSG is even considered safe by the FDA. But in 1968, a doctor sent a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine titled Chinese Restaurant Syndrome. The letter spoke about his experience of getting sick after having Chinese food. The following year, a paper titled The Cause of the Chinese Restaurant Syndrome was published and the public turned against the seasoning. Keegan Fong, a restaurant owner, said that he still gets calls asking about added MSG, which is frustrating for him because even though the food contains it, it's not like his Italian restaurant neighbors get those calls. The paper about MSG led to the Merriam-Webster adding Chinese restaurant syndrome to the dictionary. This added to public panic about it being unhealthy, which of course is also rooted in the Asian history of all of it. It wouldn't be until 2020 that the dictionary would remove that phrase. Another restaurateur laughed about how he'll have customers say that they're allergic to MSG, but then use soy sauce, which definitely has MSG in it. So when you think something is bad for you or the popular thing to be afraid of, do a little bit of digging to find the reasoning behind it. Back at the house, Rose, in blue pants and a matching blue sweater adorned with rad colored argyle, appears to be making a correction in her crossword when Blanche, once again in her all-yellow outfit, comes home in a rage. She cannot believe, she cannot believe it! She has received yet another rejection letter regarding her book getting published. Working herself into a tizzy thinking about the kid that sent her that letter, she says she's so mad she could scream, which is a common phrase. But then 
She does it. She lets out a big old scream. <laughs> this is delightful for Rose, who has never seen a person actually follow through on that threat. She's also never seen anyone laugh all the way to their bank. Coco, you really were a fan of this moment. I didn't see it coming because I, too, have never seen someone do that. <laughs> and it's very exciting for me to have a new Blanche stream <laughs> to cut to. It's a good one. It's a hearty scream. And the way her eyes get small and her body tenses up, it was a great visual. A thing I would like on a t-shirt, obviously. <laughs> great performance. All around, Rue is awesome in this episode. Yeah, I love how loopy she is. Her robe or whatever in the first scene when she's coming in after being awake for three mm -hmm. days reminds me of whenever it was in The Simpsons when Lisa... Maybe it's when they're at Itchy and Scratchy World and she drinks some of the some of the log flume water and goes insane. We found this one swimming naked in the fermentarium. I am the Lizard Queen! And I wondered how many takes that took. One, you don't want to destroy your voice. And also how shocked the audience was <laughs> the first time that she <laughs> sat there and did that. It's because no one ever does it. No one ever does it. I've never seen a hungry person eat a horse. I'm so mad I'm going to scream. That's what I'm going to say from now on. And then I'll just <laughs> More threatening that That's way. Right. The reason this is hitting Blanche so hard is that she knows being great is her destiny. And this book seemed like the path to that destiny. She would write her novel. Then she wouldn't have to worry about not being great when her looks start to go in 30 or so years. But now, if the looks ever do go, she'll have nothing to fall back on. Cue the kindness of Minnesotan Rose pulling up close to her friend, reminding her she doesn't need fame and fortune to be happy or special. She has a wonderful life full of wonderful friends. Blanche is not interested in her Midwest philosophy, nor does she agree with it. Well, that does it. Rose has had it. Minnesota is a wonderful place. Sorry it's not as fancy, worldly, rich, or plastic as Miami, but they do have friends, community love, and the things that really matter. And now that Rose has opened the can of sick-of-it worms, she's letting Blanche have it, ending her tirade by telling Blanche she should appreciate the farms that make the food that she bitches about so she can be on a diet. Heck, if those farmers didn't make that food for her to avoid, then what on earth would she obsess about? With that, Rose storms off to her room, but only for a few seconds before returning and making sure she didn't cross the line. Blanche answers with a smile. Well, speaking of worldly, we're back to the restaurant slash ballroom slash event space that, if I remember correctly, has been the home of Sophia winning her Friendship Award and a few other restaurants, which is what it is set up as this evening, a very fancy restaurant. Around the table, Blanche is in a baby blue skirt and blouse, Rose is in her white shiny dress, Sophia in a light pink coral dress, and Dorothy in her long white sweater and pants, probably some flesh boots in there too. Eric Popik has approached the group as he is playing the waiter. Eric has been working for a long time, appearing in a lot of things, including, but far from limited to, Curb Your Enthusiasm, NYPD Blue, Mouse Hunt, Silk Stockings, Baps, Melrose Place, Picket Fences, Beverly Hills 90210, Renegade, Heart and Souls, Seinfeld, Single White Female, Basic Instinct, The Wonder Years, Blossom, Problem Child, Tales from the Crypt, Dallas, The Bold and the Beautiful, Beauty and the Beast, the TV show, St. Elsewhere, Moonlighting Fame, and of course, La A La A. Baps? 
I knew it. That's why I put it in there. Baps. I knew you'd love that. As he takes their order, Dorothy starts by asking for their finest champagne. Rose tries to stop her, warning her of the expense, and she should listen to her. She's used to exorbitant drink prices. Hello, New York tomato juice. But Dorothy doesn't care. She's buying it because she's celebrating. Curious, the waiter asks what the cause of celebration is. Sophia is more than happy to answer. Her daughter has been diagnosed with a horrible disease. Their soft smiles to each other have him curious, but he just plays along. Symptoms be damned. Dorothy doesn't even care that she has something. She's just happy to have something. She isn't crazy. She isn't alone. She isn't making it up. She has a legitimate reason for feeling how she does, which somehow makes her feel better. Blanche, maybe because she's a writer, thinks chronic fatigue syndrome is a terrible name, an idea both Dorothy and Dr. Chang agree with. She isn't sleepy all the time. It's so much more than that. Rose's idea isn't terrible. She recommends calling it the Zbornak syndrome. This disgusts Blanche, who thinks it sounds like a move you would make in chess right before a queen's gambit, and she would prefer if it was called Devereaux's disease. The laughter of the moment is cut short when someone catches Dorothy's eye. It's that fancy doctor from New York City. And he has come to Miami, perhaps on holiday. And since he's so fancy, he has gone to the swankiest restaurant in town and just so happens to be there when Dorothy is. I have seen people reference this online, kind of a what are the odds. But I've bumped into people I know on airplanes and cross paths in very strange places. So this doesn't seem all that outrageous. We ran into someone we knew at a roller derby match. That's right. Just for no reason. Someone we recently met and had not discussed roller derby whatsoever. And if we had to take him to task, we would have right there on the roller derby field. I would have bashed him up. Oh, my God. What? Jammed him. You're challenging him to a fight? If we had a conflict. (laughs) He's the nicest, chillest human. No, I'm saying like like Dorothy did. Just going there, you know, if there was a beef. Oh, yeah. If you cross paths, no problem. (laughs) Sorry. There is a be threatening this gentle soul. <laughs> He's lovely. <laughs> I'll meet you on the rink. Seeing that Dorothy has her sights set on the doctor, Blanche begs of her to not make a scene. She knows her too well. Dorothy doesn't acknowledge her. She just tells them to order without her. As she walks over, we can see that, oh, she is not wearing her flesh boots, and it looks like she's wearing a cream culotte with a matching jacket and some sandals. It's probably all Chanel, like her earrings. Approaching the table, she asks Dr. Bud if he remembers her and his dismissal of her issues. He doesn't, so she reminds him of all of the horrible things he said. When he still doesn't remember her, she calls him out, maybe it's you who is getting old? Armed with her diagnosis, Dorothy educates the doctor on her new condition. Bud acknowledges her, but it's clear that he wants to get back to dinner. But Dorothy has more to say. All of the anger, frustration, sadness, and fear has come to the surface. Not only has she been sick, but she's been ignored, and that just adds to how horrible she's feeling. As she starts to get emotional, she almost stops, but she's Dorothy, so of course she pulls herself together. Curious about what is going on, Dr. Budd's wife interjects. Mrs. Helen Budd is being played by B.B. Besh. Fun fact, B.B. was the daughter of an actress and a race car driver. She was also nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Emmy for her work in the Lori Loughlin Jim Carrey made-for-TV movie Doing Time on Maple Drive. 
Have you ever heard of this film? Of course I have. I oh believe, my God. <laughs> I believe it's about a family that is, there's a lot of strife there. And I think either the dad or Jim Carrey's character has an alcohol dependency. Incredible. Is that right? I don't know. I just saw Lori Loughlin and Jim Carrey and was stunned. Just stunned. Yeah, I didn't know Lori Loughlin was in it, but I remember Jim Carrey. I, I'm sure I read that on IMDb trivia 25 <laughs> years ago. Locked that in forever. Can't remember anything else that happened. <laughs> but I got doing time on Maple Drive. <laughs> that memory is locked in. <laughs> 30 of BB's 54 years of life were spent working. Sure, you may know her from this appearance with the girls or from Steel Magnolias, Melrose Place, ER, Murder, She Wrote, Tales from the Crypt, Silk Stockings, Law and Order, Coach, Night Court, Who's That Girl, Dallas, or La La, but she will live in my heart forever as the scream queen that has haunted my nightmares, well, I think from my childhood to this day as Megan, a different doctor's wife in Tremors who meets her demise in a station wagon in the desert. Jim! To try and get rid of Dorothy, Bud stands up, but Dorothy puts a hand on his shoulder so he can sit right back down, just as she had to do while he berated her with gaslighting. Grabbing a chair from a nearby table, Dorothy begins. She reminds him that she was sick, scared, and alone, and instead of fighting to find an answer, he made her feel only worse and had her questioning her own sanity. She wants to know if that's his usual level of professional care or if that's just towards women. Dorothy then thinks out loud that perhaps if she had been a man who had approached him with the same symptoms, if he would have fought for her or listened to her. Instead, he used his wife as an example, telling her to go do her hair. When Dr. Bud tries to interrupt, his embarrassed and probably really pissed wife, who is now a blonde, tells Lewis, as we learn Dr. Bud's first name is, to shut up. Dorothy just hopes that as a doctor, Bud starts to care starts to do his job. She even wishes that every doctor could get really sick when they start out so they would know how it would feel to not be cared for by the people who are supposed to be doing the caring. She ends her speech with, when he's scared and ill, which will happen someday, that even for how mad she is, she still hopes that he ends up with a better doctor than the one she had. And with that mic drop, she returns to her table, feeling better than she has in ages. Revenge! As Dorothy toasts her loving, supportive friends, Blanche can't believe how good the champagne is. Well, Rose isn't surprised. It was $430 for the bottle, which today would be about $1,000. Nearly giving a spit take, Ellen starts barking at Rose. Now go on there and drink your drink and then head on out of town. Else I'll be the one to put a bullet in you. Sorry, that's Dorothy who is screaming at Rose as she can't afford the champagne. But uh, when you ordered it, Rose tried to stop you and she said it was expensive. But wait, so like what? Why are you yelling at her? As the ladies all frantically blame each other, Sophia stops them. She'll handle it. She's got a little trick that she's been doing since Sicilian days. Pouring salt into the glass, she then takes a big sip of the champagne and proceeds to spit it all over the floor. Immediately, the horrified waiter comes running over to see what is happening. Sophia then forces the waiter to try a sip, and he is nearly choked by how gross it is. Offering to get them a new bottle, she claims that they've been so disgusted they won't be able to drink champagne for weeks. 
So he ups the offer and says that he'll cover dinner. The girls are all holding their breaths as they look around to each other in shock. Sophia allows the waiter to pay, and once he's gone, she proclaims, now they really have a reason to celebrate. Coco, you were worried after the first episode what was going to happen to Dorothy, and now you have your answers. We watched the episodes a week apart also, so that I wouldn't know what the result was. You had the same experience yes. as viewers in the 80s. Yeah, I wanted to hang on to that anticipation and that, that feeling of fear for Dorothy. And it really paid off. And I'm so glad that it was uh, it resolved in that way. And it was just great to see a good doctor. Yeah. And to see her stand up for herself, uh, even though it's kind, that would be kind of embarrassing to do in a restaurant. I love that. Yeah, once you're armed, though, with the answers, because doctors are kind of naturally in an authoritative position. So you take what they say and there's not really much you can do to fight back. Like when she was in his office and trying to push and push and then she she just starts walking out the door because this guy is not going to listen to her or do anything. And he has the power. So what, what can she do? So when that power is flipped and now she has the power of education and knowledge to say, here's the name, here's what it does that she knows he doesn't have. It allows her to, well, lay into him. She really gives it to him good. Oh, yeah. That's a real verbal beatdown yeah. of of him as a person, not oh, just yeah. as a doctor. Oh, he yeah. He sucks. Just the wife is questioning staying married at that point. I feel that the marriage may be over. She's looking at him in a different light now. If I had a partner, doctor or not, but someone from their work came up and started... <laughs> berating them for being sexist and misogynistic and ignoring people and not helping people. I can't imagine many more horrifying things as far as a relationship. The side of this person that I don't see is awful. And the way that he talks about her, his wife, about the getting the hair dyed. Oh, yeah. He's My wife involved. went through a rough time. Now she's blonde. It's like she's hopefully having an affair on you, you jerk. You don't deserve BB. No, not even. Not even. Oh, maybe that's what we'll say. When did Tremors come out? Mm, 90, I think. Okay, so they had this dinner and she was already on the fence with Dr. Bud. She's like, I cannot take this guy anymore. And they end things, but she had been friends with the doctor from Tremors. I can't remember his name, Jerry. They were like maybe coworkers in the past or they had reconnected and he's a doctor. And she's like, I love being a doctor's wife but I can't take this crap anymore. And instead of going to fancy restaurants in Miami and New York, she went west and was living out on the land and enjoying retirement until the graboids. Everyone's worried about Dorothy's well-being and then kind of dismissing Blanche when it appears she's going through some sort of crisis. Like she's being haunted or something. (laughs) She just can't escape the spirits. Fully possessed. And everyone's like, oh, shut up, Blanche. But a great way to kick off the season. I think writing and acting and jokes and everything is very much, hey, we're in season five, kind of a new level, I think. And it was a great cliffhanger. Oh, yeah. I would like to dedicate this episode to my friend Amber. Just over two years ago, I started having health issues of my own. Long story short, here is some real TMI for y'all. If I had any kind of orgasmic muscle spasm on purpose or via a dream, because eventually it did get to that point, I would suffer from labor-intensive cramping for about 30 minutes. 
It was sporadic and random at first, but then it became weekly and it totally derailed Coco and I's personal time. But he was busy recovering from heart surgery anyway. So basically, we were the party house. Because I opened up to Amber about my situation, she stepped up and, like a masterclass host, walked me through issues she had been through. She sent me information on articles, books to read, so on. Because of the education she gave me, I was able to push back when doctors shrugged at me. Let's see. I had my first appointment with Planned Parenthood. They had never heard of anything like it. I went to another doctor. They had no idea. I had imaging done. Nothing came of it. I had more internal and external imaging done. And each time I was told, we can't see anything and we've never heard of what you have. And that left me gutted. I was pretty devastated for a while. I was Dorothy on the bed in New York City, and I couldn't sleep because I was so scared of having a cramping dream. I couldn't be touched for that same reason. I couldn't watch anything that even alluded to sex for that same reason as well. It was awful. And thanks to Amber, I was able to self-diagnose as probably having endometriosis. Some people know of it, but for how many people it affects, it should be more well-known. If you have female reproductive organs and you have painful periods or heavy bleeding, you probably have endometriosis. Technically, it means the uterine lining that is supposed to shed every month as a period starts to grow outside of your reproductive organs. That doesn't sound like much, but for some, it can attach to organs and muscles. Debilitating would be an understatement. Even though the condition affects millions and millions of women around the world, there is no imaging device available for it. So all of those ultrasounds I had, they never showed anything because they haven't even invented that. But don't worry, you can get your boner pills in the mail. I finally found an endo specialist that would take my insurance, so I made an appointment. It was for six months out. I cried at the idea of trying to live like that for so long. As far as a wait list, they told me I could call every Monday morning to check on cancellations. Then in my medical app, a family friend who is a gyno nurse and helped deliver my niece and nephew messaged me. She had seen something pop up about my appointment and put me in touch with a specialist that wasn't only just up the street from me instead of an hour away like the other, but she had an appointment the next week. After, I don't remember, six or seven doctors and a bunch of imaging, I met with that endo specialist, and she said the words I had been so desperate to hear that when I did, it actually sent me into tears. I explained my symptoms, and she said, I think I've heard of this. Just hearing that I wasn't crazy, and I wasn't alone, and I wasn't going to be in that pain forever, that was the biggest relief. The only way to be diagnosed with endometriosis is internally. So since I had always had horrible periods and was desperate for anything, and I learned that my uterus was basically split in half, I had my first surgery. First anesthesia, first stitches, first hospital stay, first IV. I went under the knife for a total hysterectomy, which is everything but the ovaries. They still hurt, but if they had taken them, I would have gone into menopause and been facing bone and heart health issues. Pretty cool. Once inside, the doctor found my pelvic floor was covered with a little blanket of endo, and they scraped it out along with my cervix, uterus, and fallopian tubes. There was a very real possibility that even after all of that, I could still experience the cramping, which was terrifying, but thank goodness it fixed it. For a long time, I was the first person to dismiss invisible and or chronic illnesses. I always felt that someone should be able to suck it up, be tougher, or get through the day. Or like so many, I judged. Perceived excuses due to an illness were met with an eye roll. 
I like to consider myself a highly empathetic person, but in that regard, I was way behind. But as I got older and started to see more and more of my friends and loved ones affected, I started to change my tune. Then I had my own health issues, and it really had me reconsidering things. I'm sorry to say it was one of those situations that it took until I was in those painful shoes to really understand. But now, now I understand. I have the patience, empathy, and education to know that these things can't be helped. And hopefully this groundbreaking episode put some people in those shoes without the pain so they could also be more understanding. As frustrating as the doctors were at times, especially those that sucked, I owe the Susan Harris's, Dorothy's, and Amber's of the world gratitude. Because they confronted the doctors at dinner or didn't take no for an answer, I was never dismissed. I was told over and over, I believe you, I just don't know what this is. It did help that they were all women, and they know women's bodies are roller coasters from hell. So thank you to everyone who never gave up on themselves, because it made me strong enough to not give up on myself. And that's the biggest lesson from the season opener, to stand up for yourself, not just to get what you need, but for all of the women in line behind you, following in your footsteps. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we talk all things spermatozoa in The Accurate Conception. turn that on just to fart no that was my chair oh let me see oh no i guess i farted is that what he's doing he's comparing the pp of a boy to sex yeah, yeah eggs are great i love them when they're fluffy i love them when they're fried i like them um in a sandwich and um omelet muffaletta frittata huevos rancheros Benedict salad sandwich. <laughs> Devil. Oh. And hmm, uh, Cadbury. <laughs> Blanche over Blanche. Hey, what do we do here? We break balls. I'm breaking balls. Now I bring in printouts from WebMD and uh, staple to my MapQuest directions. His ass was poured out of a bag. I knew then that she would one day win an Oscar. Oh, did you? No. <laughs> it was in The Last Boy Scout when but she gets run over by a Corvette. I'm a jam, you. Bye, BB. Is that how she died in real life, too? Uh, I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> Obviously, she didn't get killed by graboids. <laughs> no, I was... Um, no, I don't I... think so. I don't like throat spray. I could spirit, spill experience the persway. Spermatozoa, spermatozoa, spermatozoa. All things spermatoza, spermazoda, spermazada, spabazada, hadadada. Uh, papadia. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.